listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Of all the needs that we have as human beings, one of the deepest needs that we have is the need for home. One of the most powerful longings of the human heart is the desire for home. It's one of the things we love most, home. This, is, this need is a driving force in our lives. If, if you observe the culture, if you observe the way of the world, you will begin to see that, that this is indeed true. This longing for home animates so much of our experience. This is why men and women are willing to put their lives at risk in service in the military to defend their homeland. This is why companies market their products as homemade, even though they were produced in a factory. This is why restaurants try to draw us in with the claims of home cooking. This is why young people started to identify their closest friends as homeboys later amended to homies. This is why one of the, 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 the central expressions of the American dream is home ownership. This is why there is excitement at schools all across the nation every year when it's time for homecoming. The reason why little kids at sleepovers wake up at night terrified is because they miss the security of home. The reason why many college students struggle in their freshman year is because they miss the familiarity of home. One of the reasons why our housing market crises have been so devastating for so many people is because these foreclosures bring out the pain of losing home or being pushed out of home. One of the fundamental tensions of gentrification and housing insecurity is that for many local residents, these changes bring with them the sadness of an evaporating home. One of the reasons why many people are wounded and struggling to this day, yes, many of you sitting in the pews right now, is because you did not get a healthy experience at home. You grew up in a dysfunctional family that robbed you of the most important formative aspects of growing up in a healthy home. And now you have to battle with all of those wounds and you have to battle with all of those, those spiritual, mental, and emotional challenges because of what happened at home. Why do we have such an ache in our hearts for home? This morning, we're going to explore this theme in our text. And what we are going to see is how the Lord fulfills his promise to satisfy our desire for home. And we're going to approach this text through two points where we see, we, we, we consider where this longing for home comes from, where this longing comes from, and where this longing leads us. And so those are the two points that we're gonna orient our, our text to, or we are gonna help us to orient to our text, and, and let's dig in by looking at our first point. Where it comes from, where does the longing for home come from. Now, when you first read this passage, it comes across 
as a simple historical report of the death and burial of Abraham's beloved wife, Sarah. But key to understanding scripture is authorial intent and focus, to put it a different way. Anytime you come to the scriptures, you're coming with things that you're trying to work out, but you have to understand a distinction between the goals of the author and your own desires for answers. And you have to let the author speak on their own terms if you want to understand it. You can't get mad at the author who isn't addressing concerns that are modern concerns. They weren't on the minds of ancient people. He has a particular focus and a particular purpose in the writing. And if we tune into that, then we're dealing with scripture fairly. You might come to this text and you might very well think, hold up. This is Abraham's beloved wife, Sarah. This was his rod or die who was with him through thick and thin. This was the mother of his miracle baby. And you're telling me that she only gets a two-sentence obituary in this text and that the rest of the passage is eaten up with, with a description of some negotiation over property? That don't quite seem right. Why, why does she only get a two-sentence obituary? Good question. Here's the deal. The narrator wants you to focus not on what Abraham lost, which it was significant, but he wants you to focus on what Abraham gained, which was far more significant. He wants you to focus on what Abraham gained. The narrator is focusing on the fact that one of the major promises that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12 is beginning to be fulfilled. You see, the narrator's goal is not to answer all of the questions a modern person may ask. The goal is to make theological truth claims about the Lord. Two, to reveal the significance of this cosmic redemptive drama for every human being. And three, to form the community of believers to play their part in this story as it moves toward its glorious end. That is why the scriptures are given to us. Now, in this particular passage, we are brought into a, an engagement with one of the major promises of Genesis 12 that is incredibly relevant to us. And that is the promise of land. The promise of land. And let's take a closer look, because in order to orient ourselves to what's happening in this text, we have to always orient to the larger story. It's always a zooming in and a zooming out. And don't be surprised if you zoom in and you take issue with details here if you are not familiar with the macro narrative. It all hangs together and mutually informs. One of the ancient principles of Bible interpretation is that Scripture interprets Scripture. And so we need to zoom back out in order to understand what's happening here. Now, if you go back to Genesis chapter 12 and you remember the promises that were made, it's like a threefold promise that God makes to Abraham. The promise is for land. I will give you a land, a homeland. God promises a nomad land. I will give you seed, children, a line, descendants. You will become a nation and I will bless you. Now check it out. God had delivered on his promise of children, Isaac. God had delivered on his promise of blessing. It is all through the narrative, beginning with chapter 12, all we see happening in Abraham's life is blessing falling upon him from the, from the hand of God. However, 
the promise of land had not yet really been touched. And by this point, we are, we're almost 50 years after, I mean, maybe, no, we're more than 50 years after God's initial encounter with Abraham. And Abraham is starting to get a sense that God fulfills his promises on his own timeline. And so he's, he's waiting, and, and, and he has yet to receive this promise of land. He's still a sojourner. He is still a foreigner in a strange land that did not belong to him. And here's the thing. Ordinarily, he would not have been entitled to purchase any land. In this cultural context, as a foreigner and a sojourner, he would not have been entitled to purchase any land. But in this passage, Abraham, check it out, Abraham gets the down payment of a larger fulfillment that is to come for the land promise. This narrative, check it out, shows us how God's people get an anchor in the promised land. When Abraham purchases this piece of land in which to bury Sarah, he has now acquired a foothold in the promised land. But we really need to understand why God made this particular promise in the first place. Now, listen, we have talked about the, the whys of the other promises. God promised seed, and that was a, a reclaiming of the children of God, and it was the means by which the ultimate promised descendant of Abraham would come, the Messiah, to make everything right. That was the reason for the promise of children, of seed. We understood that the reason for the promise of blessing is because it was a rolling back of the curse that was devouring all of creation. And in his goodness, God said, I'm going to roll that back by blessing. But here's the question. Why land? Why land? Why this promise? We have to remember where we have come from in the larger story. In the beginning, in the book of Genesis, God had a land, a home for the people. And that land, that home was called Eden. If you remember back to the narrative and you read it closely, Adam and Eve were not created in Eden. They, Adam was created outside of Eden, and, and, and then the text specifically says that God placed him in Eden. And God's original vision was that Adam and Eve would cultivate Eden and they would beautify it and bring it to full flourishing, but ultimately that the entire earth would become an Eden. That the flourishing and fruitfulness in Eden was meant to spread to all of the earth. They were naked and unashamed. They belonged completely and never felt so much as the slightest need to hide or conceal themselves. Why? Because Eden was only home because it was the place of the intimate presence of God. Let me put it to you a different way. Eden would not have been Eden if God was not there. There would have been no sense of home without the Lord's presence. And so Eden was home because it was the place of God's intimate presence. And because it was the place of God's intimate presence, it was also the place of peace and flourishing. It was the place of comfort and belonging. And it was the place of deep transcendent purpose for humanity. This is 
where our longing for home comes from. It's creational. It's our hard wiring. We were created to long for home. We were created to belong at home. We were created to enjoy the peace of home. We were created to enjoy the comfort of home. We were made for home from the very beginning. We were hardwired this way. We were never meant to be pilgrims or sojourners or resident aliens on this earth. We were created to fit. We were created to belong in God's presence together. To be at home with him and with one another, experiencing all of the peace, joy, comfort, security, and transcendent purpose that we were made for. Now, we know that Adam and Eve lost Eden because of their sinful rebellion. But here's the thing. They lost so much more than we generally realize. One of the greatest losses that took place in the fall, one of the greatest losses that Adam and Eve suffered and passed on to us was the loss of home and the ache that comes with it. It was an eviction. That's what happened in Genesis 3. And if you recall, after they were evicted, it was, it was closed off. Eden was closed off to them. An angel with a, a cherub with a flaming sword symbolized that they were no longer able to gain access to home because they were unwilling to honor the terms of their tenancy in that holy place. They lost the peace of home. They lost the comfort, security, and belonging of home, all because in their sinful rebellion, they broke intimacy with the God who is home. You see that, the connection? But just because they were evicted from home didn't mean that their longing for home went away. And that's why it persists in us to this very day. You got to know they would have done anything to get back home. But there was nothing they could do. They were stuck with a longing for home and yet had no way to get back there on their own. That's how we live today. And Christians believe that this is a much more credible and sensible account of the way the world is and the way that we want the world to be than the disappointing and incoherent narratives of secular humanism. That what makes sense of the way the world is? Is it randomness? I, I, I don't find that very convincing. Why do you long for purpose? Why do you want to matter? Why do you believe that human beings deserve love? Why do you know that connection is better than isolation? Why is it the case that the most elite people on the planet who have the greatest degree of resources and amenities still find themselves unhappy and restless? It's because we are trying to address these wounds in our lives by the creation rather than turning to the creator who designed us and knows how to redeem us. Here's the thing. If you look at the lives of modern people through the lens of this theme of home, I think it helps us to understand that so much of our anxious striving and our restlessness in life is basically a scratching at the door of Eden. We're trying to get back home. 
We just long for it because we know we were made for it. And we can't not want it. We can't. All so much of our activity in life and our fretting and spinning is simply desperate attempts to get back home. The problem is that, like we said, the door was locked behind us. And secular modernity does not have the key to that door back home. We may have enough money to buy a house, but we simply cannot manufacture home. We may move all around the world in search of the right city, the right town, the right region that has the right job and the right amenities, but even perfectly curated circumstances will not address the deeper ache of our souls. Or we might reject this idea, take a me-against-the-world approach to life, close off our hearts, harden ourselves down, try not to let ourselves feel anything, but you will never enjoy real comfort, real peace, real relational flourishing, and fullness in your life if you do that. To try and just stuff it. Doesn't matter how many bedrooms and bathrooms you got, what the walkability score is, or how nice the local amenities may be, these are not enough to address our deeper longing for home. And you can keep chasing your tail, trying to get that sense of belonging and rootedness through other means, or you can begin to wrestle with the claims that we're making this morning. It has been the case that our hearts have been restless for home, no matter how much we have tried to stuff it, ignore it, numb it, or relieve it. The fundamental condition, listen, here's what I'm saying. The fundamental condition of every human being in this world is homesickness. That answers so much for us. Whether we are far away from home and in our experience we sense that we're far from home or we feel like we were robbed of a happy home so much of our anxious striving is is simply trying to get back home we're homesick it's one of the reasons why we're often grinding so much that we hurt other people in our lives is because we're trying to get home but here's the thing even though secular modernity cannot give us the key to that door God, in his great mercy, intervened. He created a way to bring his estranged people back home. And it all began with his promise to Abraham, I will give you land. This, this is what's unfolding in this text here. This realization that we all long for home, and this is one of the chief promises of God, this realization is the beginning of the long journey home for everyone who shares the faith of Abraham. Why do we have such an ache in our hearts for home? It's hereditary. It was passed down to all of us by virtue of our creation as the image of God. We were made for a home that we willingly abandoned, and now we're stuck with the longing for our lost home, but that's only half the story. This is where this desire comes from. This is where this longing comes from. But we need to see where this longing is going, which takes us to our second point, where it leads us. Now, one of the other things that's really important, see, part of what I'm trying to do for you 
As, you know the old saying, like, give a, give a person a fish, they eat for a day. Amen. Teach a person a fish, they eat for a lifetime. I'm not just trying to give you fish. I'm trying to teach you how to fish. I'm trying to give you a lens and an approach to scripture that will help to make sense of things. And one of, the, one of the things that you have to do when you go back into these ancient narratives is you have to consider not only authorial intent, the intentions of the author in writing, what was their purpose, what, was, what were their goals, but you also have to remember the original audience to whom that author was writing. And you have to understand something of their cultural context or their position in life in order to understand how this message would have hit for them. And those are the, the indicators of how this message is meant to hit for us. Now, the first audience, Israel, remember, when they get this text, they are somewhere in between Egypt and the promised land. They are on their way to the promised land. But guess what? They have encountered all kinds of troubles and trials on that long wilderness journey. And you can't imagine what a comfort and encouragement it was for them to see that the very land that they were on their way to, Abraham already got a foothold in it. It was already a down payment of God's promise. So God's promise to Abraham rings all the more true to these people, these first hearers of this message, because they were in that tension on their way to the promised land. They would have been captivated by this text, y'all. You might find this text a snoozer this morning. Give me some Romans 8 or something like that, right? Like, no, they would have been captivated by this text because this was such a promising text about the promise of God, and it gave them a great deal of security and comfort and encouragement that God was going to make good on his promise to bring them into the promised land. And this is where we need to wrestle with the text. Abraham only took possession, though, of a plot of the promised land. But Israel was looking to take possession of the whole place. And this is where we run into a tension in the larger narrative of Scripture as it relates to the promise of land and its fulfillment. Israel would eventually take possession of the promised land. And guess what? The very ground under their feet was proof positive that God is faithful to his promises. They come into the land in the very ground. Every time they walked, they were stepping on evidence that God is faithful to their promise. But the land was about more than territory, y'all. It was about more than staking out their own little homestead. No. What we see in the developing narrative as it's given to us is that the, the land... Was the presence in the land, Israel's presence in the land, was a symbol of faithfulness to the covenant promise. The land, remember, these were promises of the covenant. And if you remember back when we talked about covenant, each side of the, the deal makes promises and has obligations. And there are blessings for faithfulness to the covenant and curses for unfaithfulness to the covenant. There are there are ramifications for covenant unfaithfulness. But one of the key ideas that is given to us in the developing narrative is that Israel's presence in the land was a sign of covenant faithfulness, not only of the Lord, but of the people. God 
was faithful to his covenant promise to bring them into the land. But they were to be faithful in their relationship to God in order to remain in the land. There, there, were, there were tenant rules, okay? There were, there were obligations. And just so we're clear as it relates to land and divvying it up and people's moving around and all that, the clear perspective of Scripture is that all of us are renters. God is the sole owner of all creation. So he can do whatever he pleases with his stuff. If you want the freedom of autonomy to do whatever you want with your stuff, you, if you're going to be consistent, you have to grant God can do whatever he wants with his stuff. Okay? Just simple. God was faithful to bring them into the land, but they had to remain faithful to the covenant in order to stay in the land. Do you see a central feature of covenant keeping is the blessing of home. That is a central feature of covenant blessing, the blessing of home. But also a central feature of covenant cursing is the curse of estrangement from home. Israel's presence in the land was a barometer of their responsiveness to God's promise. And to understand the deep structure, we always have to orient to the larger story. If you would, join me in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Whoa, Deuteronomy, where's that? Fifth book of the Bible, okay? Okay, let's check that out. And you may not be familiar with this book, but essentially Deuteronomy is sort of like a reiteration of, of the law and God's expectations and the, the, the dynamics that are supposed to exist in the covenant relationship with God. And if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 30 and read verses 15 through 20, you see exactly what I'm talking about, the relationship between the land and the covenant, okay, and the, and, and the faithfulness of God and the people. This is what the text says, beginning in verse 15. The Lord says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, here it is, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Covenant blessing for faithfulness. Now, look at the flip. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them. Do you see? So when they turned away from the Lord later on, they did not live long in the land. Why? Because they broke the agreements of their tenancy. The Lord does not abide hypocrisy. And they were living the lie, claiming to be God's people, but acting in every way but as God's people. This became the way they were characterized. And the judgment that they faced, ultimately, as we follow the story out, was exile. Do you see the connection, the biblical theological 
connection here. Exile wasn't just some random discipline in the Rolodex of God's choices. It, it, it ties in with God's original plan, the way in which the people fell, the, 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 the promise that God made for restoration and salvation and redemption, and then their betrayal of that covenant. It made perfect sense that God sent them into exile because their betrayal was all about the issue of home. And they get kicked out of home. They get evicted from the land. They, and when they were evicted from the land, they lost their peace, their comfort, their belonging, and their transcendent purpose as freedom gave way to activity and home gave way to exile. But here's the thing. Remember how I talked about you got to consider the original audience? Well, you also have to understand the telescoping of audiences because there was the original wilderness audience. There was the audience during the time of the kingship. There was the audience during the time of the exile. And I want you to see again that God's word is evergreen relevant. It was relevant to those Israelites wandering in the wilderness on their way into the promised land. It was relevant to those who made it into the promised land as a reminder that God keeps his promises. And when they got exiled, this text was, was a reminder that God is kind. His promise is eternal. And it yet gave them hope that they might return home. Even after their grievous sin and failure. Even after they blew it for the umpteenth time. This passage gave them a reason for hope that they would one day return. But how? How? How could they hope that they would return again home? How could they maintain the hope of getting back home again? Frankly, more relevant, how can you and I have any hope that we may one day enjoy true home? Because we live in a rootless modern world, don't we? Part of the way that globalization works is that we always know there are options around, but in the moving, you know, all around it, all those things that are it's characteristic of people in our age, that rootlessness brings a sense of homesickness. It just exacerbates the homesickness. How do we gain any hope that we can find home? We have to follow the story to its climax to see that God keeps his promise to his people. Check it out. If you continue down to develop through the narrative and you get to the time of the prophets who are speaking to a people in exile, the prophets declare a day to the exiles. This is what, this is what Isaiah the prophet says to the exiles of his day. Chapter 60, verse 21. Check this out. This is what Isaiah says to the people. Your people... This is what God says to Isaiah. This is just the message from God. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. Now, guess what the very next verse is? The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. When you get to Luke chapter 4, when you get to Luke's gospel, and Jesus goes in to give his first public sermon in the synagogue, Jesus steps up, he says, give me a scroll. They put the Isaiah scroll in his hand. He says, good enough. It all goes to me anyway. He opens it up, and he says, 
The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jubilee. Do you understand in his sermon in Luke 4, Jesus was signifying that he is the fulfillment of the land promises that God gave to his people. Before God ever made the promise of land to Abraham, his plan was set in place. Entrance into the promised land was always meant to be sacramental, y'all. It was a token of paradise restored, a symbol of cosmic return home for all of the creation. God has always been after not just a new land for Israel, but a new heaven and a new earth for every tribe, tongue, and nation. Do you see that? God's original plan to make the whole world an Eden is recovered in the work and the person of Jesus. And you have to make the connection between Eden and new heaven and new earth. You see? And what does that do? That puts us in the very position of the original hearers. They are in between their deliverance and its completion when they are rooted in the land. And so are we. We are longing for the land of promise. We're longing for a home. But what we have to understand is true home for us is the new heaven and new earth where God's intimate presence is pervasive. And there is no sin or dysfunction interrupting our enjoyment of that promise of that fullness. Here's how one of my old seminary profs, Dr. Adrian Smith, this is how he put it. He wrote a biblical theology on land in the Bible. This is how he put it. He said, the land promise, I quote, the land promise to Abraham was from the outset part of a package deal for the reversal of the curse. The promised land was inseparable from the global goals of the redemptive drama. Put another way, if you want to understand what the land thing is all about, you got to trace the themes all the way to the end. And if you begin in Eden and you end in a new heaven and new earth, you're starting to make the connection of what the land promise is all about and what that means for you and me. It's all about the promise of returning home. Do you feel lonely at all, ever? Do you feel isolated? Do you feel misunderstood? Do you feel like you don't belong? Do you feel like nobody gets you? Do you feel like there is no place where you're welcome, no place where you fit? There's good news for you. There's good news for you. And God says, you fit with me. I am your home. I am your comfort and peace. This is why, check it out. So let's, 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 let's test this way of reading it against the larger corpus of Scripture. If you look at the book of Hebrews... The book of Hebrews comments a lot on the Old Testament, and Abraham is a favorite of the preacher in the book of Hebrews. And he says that Abraham and his people were seeking, quote, a better country, that is, a heavenly country, which is to say that Abraham was seeking a better home, that is, a heavenly home, which is to say, listen, this is not an escapist vision, it's an interventionist vision. It's not that we go off to home, it's that home comes back to us. It's not our breaking out of this world, but the kingdom breaking in. That's true home. 
The reason why God could bring us back home, y'all, listen, ultimately is because the kingdom did break in when God sent his son away from home in order to bring us back home. The story of the Bible is all about home, that God created a home for us, how God created us for home, how we surrendered that home through our rebellion and sin, and all that God has done to bring us back home. The gospel is our homecoming, y'all. Because Jesus is the key who unlocks that door, not just to Eden, but to the new heaven and the new earth. Because the new heaven, Eden was not yet a realized eschatology. If you want to talk more about that, let's get coffee. In other words, Eden was not perfect and complete. It was perfect and incomplete. There was a greater state of perfection it was meant for. And, the, and, and we're not going just back to Eden. We're going beyond Eden in the new heaven and the new earth. Because it will all be brought together in its fullness and flourishing. And we will enjoy it in that way. Jesus, listen, is able to bring us back home by being sent away from home. He's able to bring us back from exile by suffering exile for us. What do you think all the psalms of lament are about? It's about Jesus taking up our corporate laments of all types. And he experienced the ferocity of exile, the devastation of exile. Why? Because that's how committed he was to bringing you home so that you no longer have to suffer exile from the presence of God. He was voluntarily evicted from the presence of God and from the place of peace and from comfort and security, facing the judgment of the covenant that we deserve for breaking it so that he could bring covenant breakers back home to the presence of God, back home to peace, back home to comfort, back home to transcendent purpose, rather than the aimlessness that comes from a narrative of emerging from nothing and heading back to nothing. That is the saddest narrative ever. We come from nothing, and we are headed to nothing, but somehow we're supposed to derive meaning out of right now? That's nonsensical. That's incoherent. That's what I'm saying about the story, the account, making sense of why we are like we are. The, the beauty and the brokenness. But ultimately, it's summed all up in Jesus. Jesus is bringing us back home from our long night of estrangement. And it's faith in the person and work of Christ that puts you on the road back home. That's what it is. Your longing for home will only be satisfied in Jesus. It will be a journey. And there are many challenges along the way, many trials, many discomforts, many afflictions and sorrows. It will be a journey. But when you get home, everything will be right again. That difficult journey will have been worth it. So how does this shape our lives? I'm not going to tell you how many applications. I'm just going to give them to you. First, I want to encourage you to examine your attachments. Examine your attachments. And what I mean by that is sometimes we get attached to things trying to manufacture a sense of being at home. But those are like distractions to us that stop us from chasing the deeper reasons why we long for home in the first place. Remember that all of this life's temporary experiences of being at home are meant to lead us. This is the little echo that is meant to lead us to the song that God is home. Two, zoom in 
and zoom out of life in order to get a better perspective on whether or not you are trying to uh, self-medicate that, that need for home rather than actually dealing with God himself. Test him. Try and see. You owe it to yourself. We don't want to be nearsighted, so down in the weeds in this worldly realities that we miss the bigger picture of this theme of home and where it comes from and where it goes. And we don't want to be so, oh, yeah, we're so, like, farsighted that we actually aren't taking care of our responsibilities right now in the moment with the people we live life with. So, uh, the next thing I want to say is be patient on the journey home. Be patient. Be patient on the journey. And don't, don't fret too much about trials and struggles along the way. Why? I like the way an old school Puritan put it. An old school Puritan named John Trapp said that the one who rides to be crowned will not mind a little rain on the journey. Catch the image? We ride to be crowned, beloved. We shall wear a crown, the crown of life, the crown of glory, the victor's crown. We will be crowned. And the one who rides to be crowned won't mind a little rain on the journey. That's perspective. Next, don't settle for sentimental versions of home. Let them lead you to interrogate the deeper longings and where they come from and to interrogate the hope that is offered in the Christian faith. Finally, I want you to see evangelism as hospitality. Central to the work of the church is homemaking for our neighbors. We want to foster the kind of community that when they come to it, it feels homey. Like we're trying to live in such a way that our neighbors might be able to see us as homies. Right? In the purest sense of that word. We want them to feel a sense of understanding and belonging and love and purpose, transcendent purpose through their connection with us. And it's our hope that as they experience the homemaking of this community, that the Lord will work in their lives to help them to begin to make their journey back home. This is good news, beloved. Let's believe it because Jesus secured it in the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.